Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored there at the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Well, let's pray for this morning's message. Father, we thank you that you have enlightened us, enabling us to believe. And I ask that you'll grab hold of our attention to see what is before us. Pray that you'll bless the word of you, Almighty God, to the hearts of your people, and for anyone who's here or listening later who is not of the faith, that you would bring them into the fold today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We've just come off two very powerful, dramatic dramatic, um, miracles of Jesus. Uh, The feeding of 5,000 from five loaves and two fish. That is 5,000 men plus women and children. To Jesus walking on the water as if he owned it. As though he were God. And we move now to a very familiar recurring theme um, that really summarizes the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, It's a common scene of Jesus, and that is him not seeking out patience to heal, but people taking the initiative to pursue him in order to be physically healed or physically fed. Which means we're going to look at two passages this morning, Mark 4, verses 53 to 56, and John 6. This brief passage before us, beloved, makes a critical point. And that is, many many people pursue Jesus... Again, many people pursue Jesus for all the wrong reasons. For all the wrong reasons. So this passage, along with the masses who sought Jesus out after the feeding of the 5,000, reveals for us that many who seek Jesus are not true disciples of Jesus. You know, today, some of the largest churches in America continue to grow in number. The the most popular of which peddle messages of prosperity. And a fair majority of them proclaim to be what they call seeker-sensitive. Altering God's means of grace, okay, that is God's means of grace is the word preached, the word sung, the word prayed. They alter that into entertainment. And among those gatherings, people are looking for all kinds of things. They're attaching themselves to Jesus. 
But the question is, for what? Many, it's for material prosperity. For others, it may be a sensationalistic experience. Social connections. Maybe better relationships. Bottom line, they come as consumers and seekers. You look at this text, not much has changed since the days of Jesus. Since the earthly ministry of Jesus. Because that's exactly what he encountered with the majority of people who who attempted to attach themselves to him then. Are you with me? We learn from this that the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ does not equal salvation. That's the title of the message. The compassion of Jesus Christ does not equal salvation. So I want us to observe this morning from these four verses, along with some related passages from the same sequence of events given to us in John chapter 6, what I want to do is observe the particulars about why people pursue Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And then I want to conclude with looking at the big picture as to why Jesus came and the biblical response, the the biblical pursuit of Jesus in light of why he came. Okay? Are you with me? That's what we want to look at this morning, the particulars of, of why people pursue Jesus for all the wrong reasons, and then close with the big picture of why he came and what is the biblical response for pursuing him in light of that truth. Now, notice first in verses 53 to 56, some people pursue Jesus with the solitary hope of improving their physical circumstances. So let's begin by looking at the account. Notice in verse 53, we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day, Notice, when they had crossed over, that is the Sea of Galilee, that is Jesus with his 12 disciples, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. Now, having moored there, after 8 to 10 hours of making headway, we read painfully, remember the disciples were in a windstorm, and it was against them, and they, they moved, the scripture says, painfully, and that's when Jesus came walking out on the water, and he met them there. He identifies himself there. He gets into the boat with them there. And then we read, according to John's account, that immediately they were at shore. Immediately. Remember, they've been blown off course three to four miles. They've been pushed out. They're striving. They're struggling. Jesus comes out. They're freaked out of their minds. He says, fear not, I am. I am. And he gets in the boat. And immediately, they're at shore, which demonstrates his sovereignty over time, space, and matter. They made a quantum leap from the middle of the lake to the shore. Immediately. And there they are. So, It is now somewhere near daybreak. They're at Gennesaret, the land at Gennesaret. And, you know, the land of Gennesaret is often identified with the Sea of Galilee. 
in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, it's referred to as the Lake of Gennesaret. And here they are. It was a beautiful, um, densely populated place. Um, it was a very uh, fertile land there, about one mile by three miles. And Josephus, the first, uh, first century historian, tells us that it, it produced, it provided produce 10 months out of the year. So it's a beautiful place and produced much. It was four miles south of Capernaum. And remember, Capernaum was Jesus' home base for ministry. So it's just four miles south of there. And it's not surprising then that people immediately recognize Jesus when they moor there at Gennesaret. Verse 54, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately, Mark's favorite word, recognized him. And they ran about the whole region and they began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So here, picture the scene. They, they moor, uh, it's daybreak. People are running around saying the miracle worker is back. He's back. The healer is back. And they bring these sick people on their beds. Now, these beds would have been small, um, straw-filled mattresses uh, that, that poor people would use. So they're laying them on these mats. Now, remember, Jesus is on the move. Jesus, as he lands in Gennesaret, he is en route on foot to Capernaum to go preach in the synagogue there. We'll see that in just a couple minutes. So he's on the move. So as he moves, he's moving through town. So here he is going through this region, which is one mile by three miles long. Notice verse 56. And wherever he came, in villages and cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him. They begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, get that? As many as touched it were made well. The tassels, the fringe. Now remember, Jesus, his outer garment was that uh, of any Jewish man in that day. And there were blue and white tassels at the bottom on the hem. And that was to remind them to obey the law of God. So Jesus wore it according to the law. And remember in chapter 5, verse 27, the woman, the woman who had the blood flow for 12 years, remember she thought in her mind, if I can just get near him, if I can just reach out and touch the tassel, I know I'll be made well. Was she made well? She was made well. Guess what? Words got out that she was made well by touching his tassel. Word is out. No doubt the testimony of her healing had gotten around. So here they are. There's people of the villages and the towns and the countrysides, wherever the open square was in that route that he would take to Capernaum, they're laying there in the public open, in the square as he passed by, and as many touched him, we read, were made well. Notice verse 56. They implored him. It means they, they, to beg, to, to beseech. They're pleading that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and in verse 56, at the end there, as many as touched it were made well. Friends, these healings were profound acts of the compassion of Jesus. This is compassion on display. This is common grace. We call this common grace. 
on display. Notice it's non-discriminatory healing here. Out of his great compassion, he heals, in this case, anybody and everybody that touched him. Those who believed and those who did not believe in who he truly was. Now, at best, friends, most of these people had some kind of superstitious belief about Jesus, that he was a miracle worker, he was a power source, that Jesus was a conduit for healing. If you can just get close enough and plug in, you'll be purified. That's what's going on. For the most part. So we mustn't misunderstand what's happening here, beloved. This is not a case where everyone comes to Jesus and they have genuine faith about who he is. This isn't a case of Jesus both healing them physically and healing them spiritually. This is common grace, compassion. And most people in Jesus' day showed up in droves so they could get from him what they wanted. The majority. It's no different in our day. People pursue Jesus for healing. They pursue Jesus so he'll perhaps fix their financial problems, fix their marriage, increase their self-esteem. free them from their addictions, so he he becomes their higher power. Right? Word. Now, while we can understand the plight of these people, we can feel compassion for these people, they miss the whole point as to why Jesus is here. They're consumers and they're seekers. That's who they are. These are the same people who will turn on Jesus as soon as they don't get what they want from him. They'll turn on him. So in Gennesaret that morning, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows he's being used, friends. He's sovereign Lord. Perfect discernment in his humanity. Perfect wisdom. He knows, but notice, still, nevertheless, his compassion overflows. It's a beautiful picture. He may intervene compassionately today as he did here. That's why it's dangerous when people, according to God's common grace, receive God's compassion, whether he heals them, whatever he may do, it is a grave mistake to think you're right with God just because he shows compassion in this way. If one hasn't repented and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they may believe Jesus is a way or one of the ways. They're self-deceived if they think they're okay with God because they receive some of his compassion. So here we see that Jesus is pursued with the hope of improving physical ailments. And I want you to notice also that people pursue Jesus for material prosperity and personal advancement. That's what we see In John 6. While we go into John 6, I'll tell you in just a minute. So turn to John 6. Turn to John chapter 6. This is the the same sequence of events that we're seeing in John 6. Jesus just fed the 5,000, walked on water. 
And notice in John 6, about 12 hours before they moored here at Gennesaret, after the feeding miracle, notice what happens in John chapter 6, verse 14. They want to whisk Jesus away, and what do they want to do? They want to make him king. When they saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. And then notice, Jesus, perceiving they were about to come take him by force, he withdrew by himself to pray. We looked at that last Lord's Day. But let me tell you something. Them wanting to make Jesus king has very little to do with Jesus and everything with fulfilling their own earthly desires, and that is they want freedom from the constraints of the Roman Empire. Okay? They want freedom from the constraints of the Roman Empire. But remember this. Jesus has no political, no social, or economic agenda whatsoever. It isn't yet time for Jesus to usher in his kingdom in its full and final state. So the crowds, they want to make him king for their own personal advancement and their own political agenda. That's why they want to make him king. That's why he withdrew. He's not that kind of king. This is for personal gain. Personal gain. Now, people in the church, people will come to church, they'll attach themselves to the church or attach themselves to Jesus for personal gain. Perhaps it's good for business. You know, Jesus is now your LinkedIn partner. Some come to church because they're seeking a romantic relationship. Others attach themselves to the church to keep their parents happy, to keep their spouse happy, or perhaps to keep your parents or your spouse off your back. So you attend church. But it's only for personal, temporal benefit. Now, John 6 Having dismissed the crowds after he fed the 5,000, when he dismissed them, some of them lingered. Okay? So I want you to look at verses 22 to 25. Some of them lingered. Now, on the next day, verse 22, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So the day before they moored at Gennesaret, remember, Jesus told the crowds to go away. Okay, some of the crowd lingered. Here they are. They scratched their head and go, hey, I remember when Jesus pushed the 12 off on the boat and said, go, and he went up to the mountains. He's got to be somewhere around here. So they lingered, Okay. Now, notice, verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Word gets out around the Lake of Galilee, and here some boats from Tiberias come. Tiberias is on the southwest port part of the lake. Word gets out that thousands of people made an eight-mile trek from Capernaum to Bethsaida. They've been fed, so here they want to take advantage of it. And perhaps these people who walked want a, want a boat ride home. This is a way to make a little money. So boats from Tiberias show up. So when the crowd saw 
that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into those boats, and they went where? To Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to them, him, Rabbi, when did you come here? You know what's implied there? Rabbi, how did you get here? <laughs> Can you imagine if he would have told them, you know, I walked out on the water, got into the boat with my boys, and I immediately got us to shore. <laughs> so, a portion of the crowd that he dismissed back in Mark 6.45 shows up the next morning. They get in these boats and they dog-tracked Jesus to Capernaum, to the other side of the lake. And we read in, ch- in chapter 6, verse 59, notice, Jesus is going to go on and preach, and he said these things where? In the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So that means he moved his way through Gennesaret, the four miles into Capernaum. He healed all these people along the way. They were coming to him for physical healing. He healed everyone who touched his garment. And he goes into Capernaum to preach. And then this crowd shows up, having dog-tracked him around the lake. Notice verse 24. They got into the boats, went to Capernaum. Notice, seeking Jesus. Here they are, they're seekers. For what? Why do you seek Jesus? You see, they think... He's inaugurated the welfare state. And any time someone thinks that there's an inaugurated welfare state, automatically that inevitably leads to a sense of entitlement. And here they are. A provision. I'll follow this guy. Imagine a provision of endless food and free health care. That's what this is. We are no different today. That's what this is. You know, the rabbis of this day actually taught when Messiah comes, he will provide manna, as the Old Testament experienced, but on a perpetual level, continuous, never-ending level. They want free food, and they'll take free health care. So... Instead, once they track him down in Capernaum, he refuses to give them the breakfast that they want. And he preaches his sermon on the bread of life. They want more food. Notice, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Implied, how did you get here? Jesus stops them dead in their tracks, and he says in verse 26, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, okay, that I fed upward of fifteen to 20,000 people through my hands. No. You're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're here to get foddered up like a cow. You're here for more. And Jesus said, I didn't come to feed your stomach. I came to be bread for your souls as he launches into this message. And if you eat this bread that I'm preaching about, You'll never hunger. I am the bread. Come down from heaven. So let's scan the chapter. Verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? You hear that? Jesus said, 
This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. You want to do the work of God? You want to work? Then believe. That's the work. Believe on Jesus. So they said, well, then what sign will you do? Has he not done enough? Are you kidding me? Okay, hold on. Don't laugh too loud. This is what we're like, and I'll show you. What sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who who comes down from heaven, who gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet I'm telling you, you do not believe. Did you get that? They don't believe, says Jesus. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled. Hear this. Because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father. We know his mother. How does he say to us, I come down from heaven? Jesus answered, don't grumble. Don't grumble. Verse 44. And let me tell you this. No one can come to me. Did you get that? It doesn't say may. It says can. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, now Jesus' teaching is becoming intense. This is what you call difficult teaching. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They're thinking cannibalism at this point. They are. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He gets to the end of his discourse, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Did you get that? And then Jesus turns to the 12. We're not talking about the 12, because after this flock leaves, false flock, black sheep, he turns and says, you want to go with them as well? Right? You want to go away as well? And then Peter, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, the the, the eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that's metaphorical, beloved. And it symbolizes the need for accepting Jesus' work on the cross. This doesn't have anything to do with the Lord's table. This has everything to do with one's union with Christ. You get this? Our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So a question for us, applicable question. As regards laboring for things that perish, what's the proof 
that I am laboring for food that perishes. There's two things, okay? This is a test. The first thing is a discontent heart as regards things that are perishing, where in response, we demand more signs from God. Notice verse 30. They, they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, friends, if you want to mirror into what we're like, just follow the flow of this conversation. Okay, go back to John 2, John 6, verse 2. John 6, verse 2. Less than 24 hours before they land in Gennesaret and get into Capernaum. Notice, a large crowd followed, right? Because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. John chapter 6, verse 2. And then by the time you get down to verse 14, they saw the sign he had done. This is the prophet. They want to sweep him away and make him king. Okay, we get this. And now, verse 30. This is amazing. What sign do you perform that we may see so that we know you're for real? You believe it? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have some things carved out in our minds, carved in in our lives, um, and that we're banking on Jesus to give us. So we want more signs. We start demanding more signs. If God will come through, if God would only come through for me on this, I'll really trust him, right? I'll really trust him if he comes through in this. I want more signs. That's the first thing that proves we're laboring for food that perishes. Now, food in John 6 can also extend to include all the stuff we want for ourselves in this life. Yeah, it may be food. It could be fashion. It could be fame. It could be a stellar career. But all of that's futile, man. Amen? It wears out. It gets outdated. It fades. It corrodes. It breaks. It burns. It rips. It rots. Or somebody can steal it. True? It's futile. It has no lasting good. You can't take it with you. That's the point. This is the point Jesus is making. It's more than just food. You can't take it with you, he says. You know, we're just like these people. Friends, we are just like these people clinging to that which perishes every time we demand more signs from God. We're just like this. Well, he's going to have to prove himself to me. That's the first proof. We're laboring for that which perishes. The second proof that I'm laboring for things that perish is grumbling. We grumble because Jesus isn't what we want him to be, or we grumble because Jesus did not perform like I wanted him to perform, right? Just say yeah. Just agree with the pastor who's done the same thing. Word. Are you different than the Israelites who grumbled in the wilderness when they were tired of eating manna? We want meat. Oh, I'll give you meat, God said. I'm going to give you so much meat, 
you're going to be so full of it, it's going to be coming out of your nostrils, says the scripture, not John Leader, the scripture. It's going to be coming out your nose. You're going to be disgusted with it. You want to grumble? Here you go. Verse 41, it says, the Jews grumbled about him. Verse 61, Jesus knows in himself his disciples were grumbling about this. And then in verse 66, when they realize Jesus doesn't do whatever they want him to do, they go away. They leave. Seekers. Consumers. So, the citizens of Gennesaret Okay, their sin, which is the root cause of all their suffering, what I mean is an overall sense. Sin is the root of all pain and suffering, right? Not, not necessarily directly, but the point is this. Their sin, they want to be healed, right, of, of these ailments. Their sin has so blinded them that all they can see is their immediate needs, so they miss Jesus for who he really is. And then those who dog-tracked him around the Sea of Galilee, they don't care much about theology. They, they just received a really heavy message, man. This is a really heavy sermon, John 6. It's probably one of the greatest sermons in all the Bible, along with Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse. You can take your pick. <laughs> Amen? They're not interested in theology. They're not interested in the full identity of Jesus. He's identifying, identifying himself more fully. My body, my blood. I'm bread from heaven. You must feed on me. They only want him as as king for their political ambitions. That's all. That's what they want him for. And yeah, we'll take the free food along the way. Do we have breakfast this morning, Lord? So when Jesus doesn't meet their immediate expectations, they're through with him. Seekers. Consumers. They're more intrigued by his miracles than they are by him. They marveled over the miracles, but they missed the message of the miracles, a proper identification of who he was. For only who could do such miracles? God. Friends, healing was only one aspect of Jesus' ministry. Miracles, one aspect of his, of, of his ministry. They were not primarily for physical relief. All the signs and miracles were not primarily for the relief of the people. They were primarily to demonstrate who he was so that the people would, would engender all trust to him and in him. That's what it's about. And the greater work he came to do. You see the shadow of the cross looming, beloved? Do we see it looming? Do we see the, 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 the shadow of the cross cast over our Lord? Now, I want to shift from the particulars about why most people pursued Jesus and look at the big overarching picture as to why he came and the biblical response or the biblical pursuit of Jesus and what it ought to be in light of who he is and why he came. Are you with me? Okay, there's the first part. There's the particulars. 
Now, first, I want to start, in, since we're in John 6, go to John 5. And this is where Jesus charged his opponents with what we might call um, bibliolatry. And, and I steal that, I borrow that from one Peter Bolt. And he said this, it's that, 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 that refers to the, the worship of Scripture itself. Bibliolatry, like idolatry. To the, the worship of Scripture itself not seeing, okay, here it is, not seeing Jesus as the sum and substance of the scripture. Not seeing Jesus as the author and fulfillment of the scripture. Notice John 5.39. You search the scriptures, so if he's talking to these guys in this day, what scripture is he referring to? The Old Testament, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. So question, when you study the scripture, when you read the scripture, I don't care if it's Old Testament or New Testament, are you reading it so as to encounter Jesus Or are you caught up in the minutia of the law like the Pharisees were? And then you come hounding people with your pet doctrine, whatever that is. And then we all run when we see you. (laughs) Or you come in riding your favorite doctrinal hobby horse. That's all you ever talk about is this one thing. And you miss Christ in the scriptures. See, Bible study is not an end in itself, amen? Bible study leads to, points to, and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Okay, so, back to Mark. Okay, we're back in Mark. We have to realize, we've seen a lot of miracles, man. Signs, miracles, wonders, Jesus casting out demons. We've seen all this action, all this immediacy, right? But we have to remember, it's all going somewhere. So before we move on in our studies, we want to be reminded of where it's all going. And Mark is accumulating all this information, all this collection of events and situations so as to draw the bigger picture. What is he setting out to prove? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the beginning of the good news embodied in the Lord, the gospel in a body, Jesus. And what's the good news? It's this, Jesus gets hung on a cross and he dies. That's the good news. It doesn't sound like it at the outset, but it's very, very good news, amen? This is what he's after. That's what all this stuff is for. That's because something happens in the death of Jesus that's very significant. And the fact that he doesn't stay dead but raises on the third day is the confirmation that it's very good news. If he didn't raise from the dead, we wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be standing here preaching because there'd be no good news. You get it? Okay, so look at Mark 8, 31. We'll get to this in a few weeks but I don't want us to miss the looming shadow of the cross. Notice verse 31, and he began to teach them, 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That word must, beloved, is not an incidental word. You could read it like this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and he must be killed and after three days he must rise again. You could read it like that. It's what theologians call, beloved, divine necessity. Divine necessity. The, The must is equivalent to saying, this is according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. According to the Old Testament. He must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be put to death. And he must rise on the third day. Because the scripture says so. Amen? This is the overruling sovereign purpose of God. Jesus, the Messiah, comes to be put to death. To die on a cross. Capital punishment. Crushed. He has to die. Why? Why does, I mean, look, has he not given enough of himself? Providing all these miracles, all these healings, providing all this compassion. He feeds people. He casts out demons. It's all having a definite effect. Isn't that enough? No. It's not. What about, look, he led a perfect life. I mean, it's such a great example. Isn't it enough that Jesus led this life and now we should just pull up our bootstraps and just go follow him and try to be like him and follow the golden rule? Isn't that enough? Is it? That's what most of the world thinks. Is it enough? No, it's not. It wasn't enough for him to live a good life, live a good example. We follow him then. Okay, let's say for good measure, he, he, he dies a martyr's death. How about that? No. He must die. He must be put to death. Now, it will come by the way of man's hands, but who's putting him to death? God is. The Father is crushing his son. The Father puts him to death. Why is it necessary he must be put to death? The answer comes in two parts. The first, there's a major, major problem that we have. Amen? That's the first part. And the second part, there's only one solution. One. He must be put to death. What's the problem? The problem is we're all born in sin. We're all born in bondage to sin. Sin is in us, and we are in sin. That's the problem. Anyone think that they're not a sinner today? I dare you to raise your hand. Anybody? In your natural self? Anyone? Anyone? Romans 3.23. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin? Death. How did this come about? What, you want to know why you're going to die? Romans 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, 
and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. So here's Adam and Eve. They're created in the image of God. They stepped out of fellowship with God. And in their disobedience, they were cast out. They were put out of bounds. They were thrown out of the garden of protection and communion with God. Right? And Adam took the whole of humanity with him. That's your nature. The nature you're born with. You're in Adam. That's why no one had to taught you, teach you how to sin. Right? And if you're a parent, you know that you didn't have to t- teach your children how to sin. They just naturally know how to do it. Love you all, little one. <laughs> so Adam gets us there originally. So we inherit this spiritual falling condition And that for lands us under the just judgment of God. Because he's perfectly what? Holy. So the position, that position, affects the condition of our heart. And then it's made manifest, it's confirmed by way of our own disobedience. You want to know why you're an Adam? Just look at your own sin. You're a sinner. The guy who's speaking to you is a fellow sinner. The question is, are you saved by grace? That's the question. So we've all broken God's law, and every sin is an expression of rebellion against God and failure to see this, failure to see and understand your true condition um, means you're on the broad road to destruction. You see, friends, that's what's so devastating in holding to a a natural worldview. Any attempt at naturalism, naturalism is the self-deception of believing that we live in a non-spiritual universe, everything's material. That's the devastation of it. Because what it is, it is an attempt to cut ourselves loose from accountability to God and our desperate need for God. That's what naturalism is an attempt at. Cutting yourself loose from accountability to your creator. Who's the only redeemer? It's an outright lie. Now, on the other hand, many people draw to Jesus, as we said, for all the wrong reasons, without any comprehension, without any conviction of their need of salvation from their sins. They're blind to it. So, friends, the need is not only physical, it's not only material wealth and signs in the sky. That's what these people wanted. You know, Jesus could have sent a pallet of medical goods down from heaven or bread or a fat wallet, but he didn't send that, did he? He sent his son. He sent his son. There's a deep problem at the root, in the root of every human being. And it's sin. And sin separates us from God. It it not only separates us, it alienates us from Him. And only His death solves the problem. Okay, here's the upswing of the good news. Are you with me? Are you with me? Only His death solves the problem. Jesus, in His death, pays the penalty for my sin. Okay, the wages of sin is death. You've earned your wage, man. You've earned it. I've earned my wage. Jesus, in his grace, pays for it. 
Romans 6.23, second half. First half first. Wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, by way of his death, he deals with the guilt of my sin, and he deals with the penalty of my sin against God. He came to do that. All of the signs and miracles are for the purpose of that. And the that is the ransom that will be paid for me and for you. The price of freedom for many. John, uh, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. For who? Many. Not all. Many. Many. Jesus sees his death as a ransom to be paid. Okay, so the question is, why death? Why can't he just come and perform a a SEAL Team 6 tactic and deliver us from the frustrations and the deceit of Satan? Why does he come and have to pay this ransom, the ransom by way of his own life? It's because of this. The ransom's not paid to Satan. Did you get that? The ransom's not paid to Satan. Satan gets nothing but judgment. Who receives the the ransom? It's paid to God. Why? Because God is holy. Because God is just. He's absolutely true to himself. Therefore, his justice requires that all wrongs and all sins be not ignored. He can't just sweep sin under the carpet, friends. It has to be paid for. God is not cavalier about sin. That's why he sent his son, friends. That's why his son had to die, because God is holy. He's perfectly just. Therefore, Christ's death is based on the perfect righteousness of God. That's why he had to die. His death is grounded in the holiness of God as it relates to sin. I hope none of you go home and paint your face to watch football and go, yeah! If you don't stand and do yeah to that. (laughs) You get what I'm saying? I see full-grown men painting their faces. They look like a bunch of lunatics. And I think about Christians when the gospel like this is preached... Now, I'm not saying that you're you're not excited. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it ought to excite us that much is what I'm saying. That Jesus was crushed by the Father to pay a ransom, to set me free, to pay my debt. Amazing. So this ransom is a payment that must be made to secure the release of someone who's in deep debt. This is eternal debt, man. And only the infinite one can set you free. He's infinite. When Jesus is on the cross, he's bearing the punishment of the Father. Hell descended on Jesus on the cross. That's what the darkness represents. It's hell coming on him. Well, how can Jesus pay for my eternity in hell in just three hours of darkness? He was up there for six, and the answer is this, because Jesus is infinite. 
That's how he could do it. The infinite son of God who had to become a man to redeem everything that was lost in the first who? Adam as the last Adam. This is the gospel. So God's wrath is poured out upon Jesus, right? Now, when we think of God's wrath, when you think of God as being wrathful, which he is against sin and the sinner because he's holy, it's not so much a picture of a vengeful, violent, you know, smoke coming out of his nostrils deity. It's not so much that as it is a picture of his perfect holiness, his untainted purity, responding to evil and responding to sin. And God so loved the world that he what? Sent his son to bear his wrath against sin and the sinner. That's what all this is about. The good news of Jesus Christ is that the guilt problem and the penalty problem of sin is dealt dealt with by way of his death. In Christ alone, listen. In Christ alone, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7. Look at Colossians 2.13. Having forgiven us all... What, what trespasses, beloved? Okay, if you're in Christ this morning, what trespasses? All of them. What does all mean? It means all. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Romans 5.8. God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died for us. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been what? Healed. His wounds. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered what? Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Hebrews 9.23, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what all of these signs and miracles and wonders are for. To reveal his identity to the people he came to do them for. Amen? Perfect justice and perfect love meet at the cross in Christ alone. Solo Christo. Solas Christus, whichever one you prefer. Christ alone. Christ satisfies God's righteousness for us by way of his perfect life that he alone lived. There's only one. And Christ satisfies God's justice for us by way of his substitutionary death. Don't take, hey, hey. Don't let that be something that just rolls off your back. The cross work of Christ. I've heard this since I was a kid. Don't let it do that, ever. All right? Especially if you paint your face for football games. (laughs) Or whatever. He brings us into a new covenant relationship with God. He gives us a new heart. Jesus is the bread of life. We feed on him now and forevermore. Amen? 
That's where you're going, man. The marriage supper of the Lamb. So, let me close. You say, thank you. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. (laughs) Expository listeners. That was our lesson in Sunday school this morning. Okay, this passage causes us to examine our hearts, beloved. Amen? To ask ourselves the question, why are you pursuing Jesus this morning? Why are you pursuing Jesus? That's the question. And and look, he's not deceived, friends. Jesus is not fooled. Jesus is sovereign. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motivations. He knows your desires. He knows it all. So why play if you're playing? Confess it. Admit it. Repent of it. And you're saying, I just don't have this desire for some reason in this season. It's so dry I don't have the desire to pursue Jesus based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and His sanctifying grace by way of His Word. Then ask Him for it. You go to the source. You can't just try harder. You got to go to the source. The provider. What do you want from Jesus? What are you seeking from Jesus? Mark is telling us this. Mark is telling us We must take Jesus as we find him in the New Testament. All of Scripture points to him. He's not someone we accept as Savior and refuse or put aside as Lord. Amen? Some people want to control Jesus like a genie. Three wishes all the time. Just give me this, give me this, give me this. More signs, more signs. Or they become his mascot. And the depth of their theology is a t-shirt. May we not do that. No, I mean, t-shirts are fine, but don't let that be the depth of your relationship with Jesus. Amen? May we seek him in this way. So we need to gather. This is is my final statement. Why do we gather? We must gather, beloved, to be strengthened in Christ to trust in Christ, to grow in our faith, in trust, in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his finished work. That's why we meet, to worship him and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ according to his, which is the gospel. The gospel begins in Genesis, and it wraps up in Revelation. The the embodiment of it is Jesus who came. Amen? Amen? Amen.